This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree, coming to you from Philadelphia. We've got a great guest coming on with us for the program. My co host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note I'm a rich representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor at Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products. And the views or guests are their own and not those of the affiliates. Uh, so, Professor, we had a very important jobs report. I know you've been following the economy, the inflation pressures. There's a lot of economists uh, surprised today. I'm curious to get your reaction, how you're shaping up. And also, we've had a lot of earnings reports this week. So, curious to get your, your take on both fronts. Yeah, uh, exactly, Jeremy. Uh, well, first of all, the bond market has been delivered a one-two punch. Uh, first of all, it was Christine Lagarde. Uh, on uh, the European Central Bank saying inflation is a problem. That really raised rates in Europe and Japan. Japan, by the way, and and uh, Germany are now at 20 basis points of the 10-year. I think it's the first time in five years Japan's 10-year has been above zero. Um, Germany has been also below zero for a long period of time, just moved above zero. European rates are moving up. And then, of course, with the employment report that we got, this was a hot report. I mean, uh, on many on, on many fronts, not, not only in terms of the jobs created and 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 the um, um, the two month correction, which was also very very large, but particularly the wage gains. Uh, they revised the wage gains of the previous month, and they've upped it by a half a percent of what it was. So it was way above expectations. So the the job market is running extremely hot. Yes, the unemployment rate just picked up one tenth of a percent, but. Um, uh, the only soft part of the report was actually hours worked, which dropped two tenths. Um, but on every other front, it was very, very strong. Well, there was also a change in benchmarking on, in January. So there were a lot of changes throughout the month. We got a caught up. Remember that the, uh, the um, uh, in the previous two months, we had the household report being stronger than the payroll. And basically um, what we had was a, a much stronger uh, payroll report here. This often happens is one runs ahead of the other, and then they even out in the long run. But there's none the way. I mean, um, as we know, the market was positioned for a negative a negative report perhaps this morning, and it came in positive. Uh, given the inflation, given everything else that's going on, there's just nothing in the way of the Fed raising rates. I mean, people are really now talking about a half point on March. It's too premature we 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 have next week very important to look at the um um uh consumer price index uh then will come the producer price index i actually think that's monday and the following week or it's very close thereafter and then we'll have another set of price reports and an employment report before the march 16th meeting so i mean we're you know we're still a month and a half away lots of things can happen but um uh, things are running hot um and we saw the 10 year I mean, it was 193. I think it's 192 now. Um, I mean, this is uh, this is an all-time high for the uh, post-pandemic uh, recovery. Um, it looks like it's poised for 2%. Um, we have the 10-year Fed funds uh, future rate uh, right now, 136. On the, and, then, and remember, that's downward biased um, because of risk hedging. Uh, 136 is the December 22 Fed funds rate. Um, so, uh, that's up 13 basis points today. So it's, it's getting more aggressive. Now we have a, uh, we, as you said, earnings reports back and forth and the meta is really bad. Amazon really good. Um, I mean, the reason why, uh, we have, uh, outperformance of NASDAQ is, uh, today is, uh, but despite the rising bond yields, this would normally, uh, knock NASDAQ down was of course the Amazon report and the snap report. Um, didn't seem to have the same type of problems that Meta had, uh, and this encouraged a lot of investors. But don't forget, though, they, th- these markets were actually up a lot more yesterday after Amazon, and they've come down So because of the rise in yields. 
So uh, we'll see whether the you know if the rise in yields continues, and if there's if there's hawkish sounds by Fed officials that they may be rise raising um, multiple more times or a 50 basis point hike, something like that, uh, that would tend to um, also harm the long duration stocks. But again, except for Meta, a lot of them are pulling uh, pulling their weight on earnings. And um, that saved them this week. I mean, they were down in the you know, before, before Amazon. Uh, they were certainly going down the tube on Thursday. It, it's interesting on your um, on your call uh, on the inflation and the rotation that we're seeing, and you see some of these big stocks. Facebook or Meta wasn't even the most expensive of these stocks. I, I, in, when I look at the valuation ratios, and then it's still then it can still fall twenty five percent on on yeah. a combination of things. I mean, is that that you, you've been calling for this bear market in, in NASDAQ. How much more do you think it has to go on that? Well, we don't have a bear market yet. Technically it needs to be 20% on a closing basis. Um, I mean, it looked like it was getting that way on, on Thursday. Uh, you're perfectly right. Meadow was not, I mean, you know, basically it's, it's Amazon and Tesla. Tesla is actually up one and a half percent today. Of course, Amazon's up 13% now. Uh, and clearly great earnings uh, across the board. Uh, so those are the ones that are actually up. I mean, um, uh, Google is down fractionally. Microsoft up uh, about one and a third percent. So, uh, I mean, you know, uh, you know, the big five or six are still delivering. I mean, Netflix, uh, the, the problem with Meta and, and the problem with Netflix is, is that change in Contact is, is is TikTok going to take away? Um, is it the old platform? Is it is its moat been uh, violated? Uh, has Netflix moat been violated? Um, you know, Amazon is raising its Prime fee to 130. Um, some people are saying it could raise it to 200. People love it so much, um, but you don't know when moats are breached. And, um, uh, you know, with Meta and with um, Netflix, there's a few that are questioning maybe the model is not going to be the prime model going forward. Would that happen elsewhere? Now, we didn't get a good, you know, result from uh, Ford. uh, And we got a few of those uh, less glamorous stocks actually didn't do well on earnings. Um, so we're, we're getting big bounces on these earnings. Expectations are very high for clearly. I mean, I mean, let's put it this way. I mean, NASDAQ is up three quarters of a percent today after Amazon blowout earnings. Um, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world. I mean, you know, it shows you there's pressure elsewhere in, 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 in that, in that space. And there will be if those yields continue uh, to rise, and if any one of the tech companies um, falter, and there's a question of whether their model is going to produce a double-digit growth that they've experienced over the last really ten years, um, they will be harshly punished uh, as a result. Well, Professor, you're, uh, it's always great to get your feedback, and looking forward to hearing uh, what, what's, what's happening next week after the uh, more more data comes out. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks, Professor. Have a good weekend. Uh, we're going to turn our conversation to uh, the charts. Uh, look at the charts with Mr. All-Star Charts, J.C. Peretz, a friend of the program. We've had him before, um, and, um, and and one of the, the key guys I watch, uh, I know a lot of people on Twitter and, and in, in his network are following, following the charts with J.C. J.C., welcome back to Behind the Markets. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure, Jeremy. Um, for the for people who are just hearing about All Star Charts for the first time, um, people in their in their car, tell us a little bit about yourself. What, how you got started following the markets, your approach to following the markets, and, and we'll give them some background on you before we before we uh, look at the charts around the world. Yeah, definitely. Just to you know, kind of put things in perspective, I, uh, I I came onto the scene about twenty years ago, so I'm working on two decades of experience now, which I think. You know, everybody always talks about like experience and how that's so helpful. In this particular environment, my experiences in with rising rate environments, my experiences with, you know, the more cyclical areas of the market outperforming emerging markets international 
I've been around just long enough to see those particular cycles. And there's a lot of newer investors who've never seen anything like that. So they're like, what do you mean an oil and gas stock? Why would I buy that? Like, well, young lad, back in the day, we used to have cycles where stocks like that were outperformers. And I just so happen to remember, I haven't lost all my brain cells just yet. So I remember some of those. And, you know, this sort of uh, reminds me of that. So anyway, um, uh, how did I become a technical analyst? Really, nothing else really seemed to work. Right. You, you buy cheap stocks because of their multiples and they, they tend to get cheaper. And, um, you know, you, 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 you fall in love with a company, you know, buy, buy what you know. Right. The old Peter Lynch sort of model. And I would buy what I knew. And that didn't work either. So then ultimately, I realized that there were people lying to me. There were people who were just wrong. Right. So it's not always malicious from a CEO. Sometimes they could just be wrong. You know, analysts give their opinions. Those government uh, numbers are, are just estimates. They tell you ahead of time they're going to revise them a few times in the coming quarters. But none of that stuff really seemed to make any sense because things were always changing and they were just based on opinion, right? Garbage in, garbage out. And that's really where technical analysis came in because it's really the only truth. Price is the only truth. Uh, it's the only thing that's never going to be revised. So if you're looking for trustworthy information, the prices of stocks, the prices of bonds based on where their interest rates are, certainly commodities, um, you know, really, really tells you what the actual story is. You know, I just heard um, Mr. Siegel talking about, you know, how the Nasdaq's officially not in a bear market, something about 20%. You know, respectfully, I don't know who made that up. That's, that just seems like an arbitrary number. The average Nasdaq stock is down 45%. Half the Nasdaq stocks have gotten cut in half. If you don't call that a bear market, I don't know what the hell you're looking at. Um, I don't know if you're waiting for like a trigger to signal that it's officially a bear market. Nasdaq's been in a bear market for almost a year now. Stock market peaked in the second week of February of last year. The one-year anniversary is next week. So if you're waiting for a bear market in the Nasdaq, I don't know where the hell you've been over the last year. Uh, We've been in a steady, uh, very well-defined bear market for the Nasdaq, for growth stocks, for small-cap growth stocks. You know, they all peaked in the second week of February. Biotechnology, the SPACs, the IPO index. Uh, small cap growth, growth on a relative basis. They all peaked a year ago. If you're waiting for a bear market in the NASDAQ, you know, really, where have you been over the last year? So that, that's just a little bit of uh, my perspective on the markets. And I'm the founder and CEO of All Star Charts. And we provide technical analysis and, um, you know, data uh, from assets all over the world to investors of all kinds, pretty much anybody who needs to put money to work on a regular basis, whether they're the largest banks and hedge funds that you're very familiar with, all the way down to individual investors who are first opening up their first Robinhood accounts and everyone in between, financial advisors, uh, pros, and uh, individuals. And it really is cool to be able to speak with investors all over the world every single day. Jeremy, what's hilarious about it is that they pay me for this stuff, but I'm the one learning. I should be paying them. That's great. Um, so t- so in, in terms of there's a lot of different um... – types of charting and, and, and you think about the different technical indicators, is there, when you look at how you can form your views, are, are there some go-to indicators that you say, here's where, here's where the common person looks at technicals that's, that I find not where I want to go. And here, what, how did you form your, your set of patterns that you're looking for? Yeah. And, and listen, it's a great question because, you know, when you first get into the world of technical analysis, the first things that they teach you are indicators and they teach you mean reversion strategies. And, and that's probably the worst place to start. You know, your education is, is looking at indicators and looking at mean reversion strategies because indicators are a derivative of price. Number one. Number two, if you're always looking for a mean reversion, which is a lot of the things they teach you early on, you're missing the whole point of what we're doing. Because markets trend, prices trend. We know we know that for a fact. It's not like this like random price behavior that falls under a normal distribution curve. That's not the case at all. We know mathematically, just basic common arithmetic, that prices trend. We know that for a fact, and that's why technical analysis works. Because what are we doing? We're analyzing the trends of markets. You know, these growth investors, quote unquote, growth investors, whatever the hell that is. They were telling me a month ago that energy was overextended and it was overbought. That was a month ago. Energy stocks are up 25% year to date. And a lot of these growth areas are just slaughtered. But that's not anything new. Last year, energy was the best performing sector. It's this year again. Commodities were the best performing asset class last year. So 
So far this year, that's the case. So we're not seeing anything new. We're just seeing more of the same. And in my particular approach to the market, we don't really worry about indicators. I mean, I, I analyze momentum. Uh, we use a 14-period RSI to help supplement the price behavior. Um, but that's it, it's it's 99% price-based. Uh, and anything else after that, the small percentage uh, where we include momentum, seasonality, you know, sentiment analysis, we do a lot of intermarket analysis, but that's really uh, all price also. Uh, so I'm a price guy. It doesn't lie to me. I like that. Yeah, and and so it's it's interesting on the the Nasdaq stocks. We've been talking a lot about how it's been able to be held up by the top because of the cap weighting. A lot of those big fang stocks have held it up, and and then you've got the to your point, like half the market in in a serious bear market. Um, how do you think about that top of the, those top stocks? Where are, is is and certainly they're, they're, the earnings reports this week are you're seeing a lot of activity. How, how do you look at the uh, that whole market. Yeah, I mean, listen, a lot of these stocks that have gotten crushed were already in downtrends, you know, because uh, a funny way of sniffing that stuff out. You know, you're looking at um, you're looking at Deutsche Bank and all these German yields ripping uh, because after some announcement yesterday, they were ripping before that announcement. Right. So, you know, price is a leading indicator. As far as the Nasdaq's concerned, I think it's really important to understand what's in the Nasdaq. You look at the components, the actual the, I don't know if you know this, Jeremy, the definition of the Nasdaq 100 is the largest companies that are not financials. Literally in the definition of the NASDAQ 100, it is X financials, which is hilarious. Um, and then there's obviously no energy, no materials. So you're getting a ton of growth in the NASDAQ, and you're getting very little exposure to those cyclical areas. And what's, uh, what's interesting, and that I think in a lot of investors fail to realize, people are like, oh, the NASDAQ is the stock market. It's like, no. You might think it, it has been over the last decade as interest rates have been falling, and high-growth stocks tend to outperform in that environment. But, and this is not anything new, we know this, this is common sense, we, we have the data, when interest rates are rising, it's the growth stocks that underperform. Technology, all of those high-growth areas are afterthoughts. The companies that do well in that environment are things like energy, things like financials, and natural resources. And as it turns out, as interest rates have been going up, what are the companies that are doing the best? Natural resources, energy, financials. So the market is acting perfectly normal, and they are penalizing investors who fail to re- who, rec- who fail to recognize what's happening in the bond market, which is interest rates are going up, and investors think that just because they made money two years ago in these growth stocks, they think that we're still in that environment when it couldn't be further, uh, it couldn't be more different than where we were a couple of years ago. First, we want to identify what type of market environment we're in. What type of market environment are we in? And then we need to figure out which types of strategies to incorporate in that particular type of environment. And in a rising rate environment, owning growth stocks is historically a terrible idea. And as it turns out, the market is proving that that is still the case. So let's let's talk about the rates, because I think so much of this year is going to be predicated on what happens to the Fed and, and, and people behind the market listeners are going to be well familiar with Siegel's view that he's much more aggressive on the Fed and thinks uh, inflation is a, ma- a major concern and that they're even as, as aggressive as people have ratcheted up rate policies, he's way more aggressive. But let's so let's say people listen to Siegel and, and view that as, as a case. What, what, well, what are you what are you looking at as as the rates indicators? What are you watching to see how, how much this value rotation has legs? Yeah, certainly not what the Fed has to say. I mean, I couldn't care less what these people have to say. They're late to the party, as usual, behind the curve, no pun intended, as usual. Uh, maybe pun a little bit intended. <laughs> Price has been right. Price has nailed it. Bonds have been getting destroyed since last summer. This isn't like something that just happened. It's not like inflation just got here. The CRB index is making seven-year highs. Crude oil is at 92. You don't need some... Federal Reserve governor to tell you that inflation is just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Price has been telling us that forever. Hello? So the, and the, the market is very smart. The market's a hell of a lot smarter than some Fed governor, right? Because you're talking about the collective wisdom of investors all over the world with way more money, way more power, and more, way more resources than some Fed governor, right? And they're going to go out of their way to get the right information to position themselves properly. In the case of interest rates, it's public information. In the case of individual stocks, it's illegal information that we see them acting upon. But I trust the behavior of those 
with the most amount of money, the most amount of power, the most amount of contacts and information, and I, I trust how they're act. I don't know what information they have. They're certainly not going to tell me. I don't know who it is that's putting on these positions, but you can see it in price, Jeremy. You can see it in price, and if you're worried about inflation now, where have you been the last year? And the fact that growth stocks peaked in February of last year, they've been sniffing out this inflation and higher interest rates for a long time. All you have to do is pay attention. We're talking with J.C. Peretz, CEO, founder, All Star Charts, about his look at the markets, uh, where he's going. So, J.C., it sounds like um, the, the the indicators have been on this growth out and in, in, in inflation up within c- commodities. That you just mentioned commodities being one of the key inflation drivers. I see you also you do a lot of charts on gold, uh, and you sort of like to ping the gold bugs versus gold versus the commodities. Let's talk about your view on gold, uh, and, and and I know. Well, the, the, the charts generally are saying gold has not been a great place to be. But but what what's what's your general sense on, on what's happening in the gold places? I mean, there isn't a worse place you could have been than gold. I mean, you could have bought anything the last decade, like literally anything, stocks, bonds, you know, and you would have made money except for gold. So, I mean, man, and talk about especially over the last couple of years. I mean, God, just terrible, um, particularly when it peaked at those 2011 highs. So gold is just stuck below those former highs, no progress in a decade. And I mean, listen, uh, even in the last week, the dollar got slammed and gold still couldn't go up. You know, if you would have told anybody, hey, inflation's gonna be doing this, oil's gonna be doing this, you know, base metals are gonna be doing this, what's gold doing? Everybody would have said higher. And it hasn't been going higher. So I think you've seen every opportunity in the world for gold to do well, and it hasn't. Uh, so it's in show me mode. Let's see it. You know, I, what's great about technical analysis, what's great about the markets is that we don't have to like, you know, be ahead of things. We don't have to like pretend that we know, yep, gold's going to break out next week. Like, why can't we just let it break out? If you would have just been patient over the last year and a half in gold, you wouldn't have been sitting in this garbage and you would have been in things that have been going up in price. So for looking at real rates, you get a spike in real rates. I think gold's going to get destroyed um, it's really vulnerable because it hasn't worked in environments where it probably should have worked. And uh, historically, the lower real rates go, it's probably good for gold. So if you get a spike in real rates, I think that's all she wrote for precious metals. So for me, I'm in show me mode for gold. If we get a breakout above 2000 and we can hold that and we're holding above those 2011 highs in gold, fine, I'm in. I used to be a gold bug, Jeremy. I think people forget that people are like, oh, JC, why are you always giving gold bugs a hard time? It's not that I'm giving them a hard time. They give the, they, they, they're ruining their own lives. They don't need me to tell them that. They see it in price. They look at the value of their portfolios not going up when everybody else is making money. You don't need me to tell you that. I used to be a gold bug 15 years ago, um, and it was, it was fun being a gold bug, and, and we were doing great. And uh, ultimately, price proved that that was no longer a good idea. Fortunately, we're technicians, and we, we, we respect price. You know, I can't imagine being one of these people that just ignores what price is doing because I think I'm smarter or I think I know something the market doesn't. Like, I couldn't, couldn't imagine what that sort of life is like. You wake up in the morning and, and you tell yourself one thing and then price does something else. and You just like pretend it's not happening. Like, that must be so stressful. Like, how do you sleep at night? You know? I was cu- I was curious what the levels that you would get you excited. So two thousand on gold would be one that would be interesting. Um, it, it's got to be you- above the twenty eleven highs, Jeremy. You know what I'm saying? Like we got back up there, right? So we got to those highs. We sold off. Everybody knows the story. And then we got back there in August of twenty twenty. And then since then, we've been stuck below that. So until the market proves that demand has been able to absorb all of that overhead supply, there's nothing to do there. So yep. so for me. Gold's either a short or a stay away, and then you buy the breakout if it ever comes. Like that, that's that's how I approach precious metals market. And so, in 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 some of the most volatile commodities, oil has been on a tear as we talked about. Natural gas is whipsawed back and forth, but generally much higher. Do you, do you at at some levels do you start to worry gets this overextended question, or do, is it as long as that general trend is rising? Stay with oil as long as it's continued to trend up until the the overall dynamic changes. Do you, do you worry about getting overextended? Of course. And we were looking at 84, and it's like, listen, if, if oil's above 84 and the U.S. 10-year yield's above 1.7, you got to stick with that trade. You got to keep buying energy stocks. You got to keep buying oil. You got to keep selling bonds. Like, 
that, you know, but in my world, I know for a fact that I don't know what's going to happen next. I know how some people, they think they know what's happening next and all that stuff. I know for a fact, I'm not, I'm not that smart. I have no idea what's going to happen next. So for me, I live my life based on if then statements. So over the last couple of weeks, it's like, okay, if the U S 10 year yields above 1.7, if, uh, Oil is above 84. We got to stick with it with this trade, right? Prior level was 76 in oil. Uh, prior level was 1.4% on the U.S. 10-year yield. So you're readjusting and being like, wow, if we break that, chances are we're, with that, that trend is over for at least for now. And we never broke any of those levels, right? Tens held at 1.7. Uh, oil held at 84 beautifully. And they're heading higher. And this is the trend, right? So you have like growth investors that think that the stock market's in a bear market just because the stocks that they own are in a bear market, right? The stocks that they own haven't been doing well, but that's because they're ignoring their relative strength scanners. They're ignoring the new 52 week highs list. They're ignoring the sector rotation. And I think the biggest thing, Jeremy, is the following, particularly American investors and their home country bias, right? These, the S&P 500, if you own the S&P 500, 2% of your portfolio is in energy, 2% of your portfolio is in materials, right? You know, 20 something percent of your portfolio is in technology. If you own the NASDAQ 100, you have no energy, you have no financials, you have no materials, you got way too much technology. You, this is what American investors own. So, I, and I know that, obviously, which I believe is a huge catalyst. Like, these energy, ex, the energy exposure is at the point where, as a sector, energy can double or triple, and it's not going to make a dent in your portfolio because you've got way too much technology if you're one of these investors that own major U.S. indexes, which I know a lot of investors do. And I think that's the catalyst. Jeremy, in 2021, energy was the best performing sector in the S&P 500. Commodities were the best performing asset class. So far this year, same exact thing. Energy and commodities, best performers. And nobody's happy. People think that we're in a bear market because they own all that other junk. And they're not in the types of stocks that tend to do well when interest rates are going up. I have no idea why. But that's what I see. And I think that's a major catalyst that continues to point to the fact that we are most likely, and I've been saying this for over a year, we are most likely in the early stages of a commodity super cycle. And what do we know about these things is that they don't last a few months or a few years. They last a decade, right? And as we speak, the CRB index is making new multi-year highs relative to the S&P 500. So let me flip that upside down. Currently, the S&P 500 is making new two-year lows relative to commodities, multi-year lows for stocks compared to commodities. So, and I don't see anybody, you know, chasing commodities. I'm seeing the opposite. I'm seeing people, you know, so worried about what Facebook did or Netflix, and they're worried about all this stuff that used to work back in the day, and they're just so concentrated on all this garbage that they missed the giant elephant walking right in front of them. There's so much to go on there. I mean, your point on how the indexes have changed the last time these emerging market indexes did well, it's, it's not far from the two decades ago, but it, when, it, when oil peaked at 150 back in 08, you know, what mm -hmm. you had different, the emerging markets indexes had a third almost, like 30% in commodities and energy. And now again, even there, it's been like collapsing yeah. in way less unless you're doing some value strategy. Value strategies could have good 30, 40% in those sectors, but the traditional beta indexes are very, very low because it's been a 15 year bear market in that stuff. Um, it's, so this it's is, fascinating. This isn't, your daddy's, this isn't your daddy's emerging markets index anymore, right? Like it's not that natural resource exposure that you had in 03, 04, 05, 06, 07, when all these things were ripping, remember? Yes. Uh, you, I know you remember. We were both in that environment. I remember. I, I've known you for a long time. You know, we were in that environment. We've seen those cycles where emerging markets, where international outperformed, where the cyclical areas and, and natural resource areas of the market outperformed. I remember buying Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and Merrill Lynch. I remember buying those stocks, right? I remember buying these, you know, Peabody Energy and Walter Industries. These were the types of stocks that were doing well in that environment. And then they did it for a long, long time. And we have a lot of new investors that weren't around in those previous cycles. And I would encourage investors of all ages, even if you did trade in those environments, go back, go back and look. What were interest rates doing? They were going up. What were growth stocks doing? They were underperforming. What were small cap growth stocks doing? They were underperforming even more. You know, what were American stocks doing? Underperforming. Technology, afterthought. Yeah, it was a different environment. I think it's important to recognize what type of environment we're in and then figure out what are the best tools and strategies to benefit from that particular type of environment. And, and every environment is different. 
JC, you're talking about a commodity super cycle. It's our interesting breakouts on commodities. One of the things when you're looking at just the price of the spot commodities, you know, one of the things commodities after that 08 peak was a bear market and very painful, but also in the way people access it in the futures market is a very confusing thing, the futures market with the contango and backwardation and the cost to roll futures. And, you know, a lot of the traditional access vehicles, they were quite expensive. You know, the, the cost to roll was really, really painful with these the, the shape of the futures curve. That dynamic has also changed. And it's, it's become more of like a credit or an income to roll the futures that a lot of people don't quite appreciate, uh, in my view. I mean, we, we've, I, I see roll yields now on broad baskets of 3 to 4% in addition to the price gains you're talking about breaking out on, on, the, on the spot markets. Is that is that something you pay attention to, or you're, you're looking at the, the spot prices versus the futures market there? Yeah, for me, I'm using most of these things. I mean, yeah, sure, I've traded futures. I'll, I'll put on a futures trade on occasion, but I'm mostly using it for information, right? I'm mostly using it for information, to particularly intermarket information. So, like, you know, all these base metals that trade in London, like, I'm not trading lead futures or tin futures or aluminum futures, but guess what? I'm, I'm, I certainly keep my eye on those, and we have equally weighted baskets. So, like, we kind of take copper out of the equation. So we're looking at, like, an equally weighted basket of aluminum, tin, lead, nickel, and copper, right? So we can kind of look at base metals as a group uh, and then compare them to a group of precious metals like gold, silver, and platinum. And then when you compare those two base metals to precious metals, they tend to move with interest rates. So the fact that base metals have been doing well and, and precious metals continue to do nothing, just hang around in the dirt, you know, that is consistent with higher interest rates. So I might not put on a copper's, like I haven't traded a copper future or an Australian dollar future in, I couldn't tell you how long, but every morning when I wake up, I want to know what Australian dollar is doing. I want to know what copper is doing. I want to know what dollar index futures are doing. I have absolutely no interest in putting on a U.S. dollar index futures trade, but that's real, real source of information. Um, and, uh, and, and that's how I look at the futures market, really more so for information. And then in a lot of cases, then we can put those trades on. So in a lot, case of like a copper, you've got a lot of these base metals, things like Freeport MacMoran, and you could put on trades to uh, express a thesis in the copper's market. Or if copper's outperforming gold, you know, you, you could sell bonds, for example, sell treasury bonds, short TLT, short IEF, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, when it, obviously when you're seeing oil making new seven-year highs, and the CRB index, which is basically a third energy, making new seven-year highs, hey, maybe energy stocks are probably a good place to take a look. And as it turns out, it was a great place to take a look. I think energy stocks are up like 25% this year alone. That, that number, is that right? It's, it's, I think uh, XLE is up 20-something percent just this year alone. Uh, and, you know, you don't – I mean, yes, we did have an oil trade on. Uh, we put on an oil trade. We bought the January 20 – 22 USO calls a year ago, just to put things in perspective. Uh, and now, oddly enough, uh, funny enough, we put on uh, a leap on Chevron this week. So you know, so this is a this is one of my favorite trades that we put on this week. It's a Chevron 2024 January 150 strike call. So we're going out two years, and why am I doing that? Because yeah. Energy stocks are kind of extended. They've really made a big move. So when I ask myself the question, do I want to add to my energy exposure over the next couple of days? Eh, probably not. Do I want to add to my energy exposure for the next couple of weeks? Eh, probably not. Next couple of months? Eh, it might work, but I'm not that confident. But what about the next two years? JC, do I want more exposure to energy over the next two years? And my answer is absolutely yes. You can ask that question to yourself and you make your own answer. But for me, I definitely want more energy exposure over the next two years. So these Chevron leaps going out to January 2024, which, by the way, were only 12 bucks, which was insane. Just part of the reason we bought it because they were so cheap. What this allows it to do is it allows Chevron to dance. We don't need it. Like, can Chevron hit that strike price next week? Sure. But it doesn't have to. And it doesn't necessarily help us if it does. Right? So we can have a three-month correction in Chevron, a two-month correction. We can have a six-month correction in Chevron. And this still turns out to be an incredible trade over time. So as soon as that premium doubles, we're going to take half off the table, and we're going to let it run until expiration. That's, that's the trade, Jeremy. 
And so then you guys, uh, on, on some of the different um, subscriptions or services you guys are doing, you're talking about stocks, you're talking about these broad markets, as it sounds like now options as a as a category. What what are the other types of options, things you guys like to do when you're, you're I guess, in, in, in that in that service package there? Yeah, you know, one, one trade that has been working very consistently well over the last, particularly over the last four or five months, is selling volatility. You know, I talk to a lot of traders. You, I'm sure, talk to a lot of traders. What's the common denominator? And JC, this is one of the toughest markets of my career. Man, I'm getting chopped up. You know, breakouts aren't, aren't, aren't working. You know, this is one of the toughest markets in my career. I keep hearing that over and over again. So what does that mean? That these traders are getting chopped up. They're not recognizing that we're in a sideways range and they think that we're in a trending environment like we were, uh, you know, prior. But all these traders getting chopped up and making donations to the market, there's somebody on the other side of that trade collecting those donations. And we try to be that other somebody as much as possible. So when volatility spikes, we're selling spreads, you know, we're selling naked puts, you know, and, and our targets are being hit in four or five days. We sold uh, puts in Berkshire Hathaway last week. That target was hit Tuesday, I believe. We sold uh, put spreads in Qualcomm. That target was hit four or five days later. You know, so when volatility spikes, you look for relative strength because you're not necessarily betting that it's going to go up. You're more so betting that it's going to stop going down, maybe go sideways a little bit. In any of those cases, you end up winning. So they're not hero trades where they're going to change your life, but they're very high probability trades with fixed amount of risk. And boy, they add up. And when you hear traders being like, oh, JC, I'm getting chopped up. This is the, one of the hardest environments of my career. This is the toughest environment of my career. I mean, that's, that's the, my favorite thing to hear when we're selling premium uh, because that means traders are getting chopped up and they're making donations. And it's up to us as investors to either walk over to the sidewalk and pick up those dollar bills or leave it alone like a lot of investors do. They, they just leave it there. They walk right by it because what, what do the economists say? Like there's money – there's definitely money there on the sidewalk, but is it there in theory? <laughs> so they just the leave it there. Bill. We go over and we pick it up, right? There you go. Um, you know, one of the topics we we've we danced around. You, you mentioned the dollar in one of your in your conversations around gold. Um, you know, the dollar used to be the strong negative correlation to commodities, like where the rising commodities dollar couldn't do well. You've seen the dollar actually do well. You did it well last year. It, it started the year uh, pretty well as well. How do you view the dollar? Is it relationship changing? Um, and and is the what, what's your read on the, the the trending price of the dollar? I mean, when I came in this week and we saw the dollar losing those November highs, I said it. I'm like, man, there is nothing more bullish for risk assets than the dollar getting slaughtered here. We look at the commitment of traders report in the futures market and commercial hedgers, who we consider the smart money, have on very extreme net short positions in the U.S. dollar index futures. And on the other side of the coin, uh, extreme, historic, extreme bullish positions, net long positions in Aussie dollar. When I see hedgers, I mean, this has really been set up for it. We've just waited for the dollar to, to break and stop that this week. And the U.S. dollar has had a very high negative correlation with risk assets over the last five, six years. You know, that really got strong at the end of 2016. The dollar... Uh, peaked at the end of 2016, got killed from there, and stock just absolutely ripped. Then the dollar bottomed in early 2018. That's when stocks peaked in early 2018, went into a multi-year bear market, and then you saw the dollar bottom out uh, at the end, you know, around March uh, in the COVID lows uh, in 2020. Dollar uh, peaked, started selling off, and that's when risk assets really got going. So when you've seen this dollar strength throughout last year, that's really had a negative impact on stocks around the world. But I must say, it's a great question that you asked, I must say how impressed I am with the resiliency in commodities despite that stronger dollar. I think that speaks more to the strength in energy and commodities than it does the dollar. Uh, now the dollar rolling over, just think about it. If commodities did as well as they did in the face of a strong dollar, how do you think they're going to do when the dollar's falling? Yeah, I wonder, you know, I think some of the, well, there was a narrative on oil and, and for sure, like the U.S. being through with the last time you had this major commodity bull market in the the early, you know, that OA period, we were a big oil importer and we would be selling dollars to buy oil. And, and then you have the huge change in, in shale and, and the exports from the U.S. and 
and the balance of oil, I wonder how much of it is tied to oil as one question. The other people were saying, well, just capital flows in the U.S. is the dominating destination for growth. Um, is, and the question was like, with all these tech stocks selling off, is the U.S. going to still have that dynamic of capital flows coming to the U.S. because of you know, people wanting the tech stocks in the U.S.? That, that, those, that, those are two of the questions on my mind of, is it oil? Is it tech? Is it capital flows? Um, you know, how much is the Fed? All these different things impact the dollar versus these other markets. You know, for me, it's more of a safe haven. You know, a lot of assets uh, were struggling. Stocks were struggling, um, and they they were going in there. There's very look, go look at the, go run the numbers. You have a very strong negative correlation between risk assets and the U.S. dollar over the last half decade or so, and that still remains the case. Um, and that could be changing, right? There's no evidence that it is changing. But if the dollar index, if, if we're right here and the commercial hedges are right and the dollar gets slaughtered, I think that's going to keep a bid under uh, risk assets in general, uh, equities in general. It's probably a healthy stock market environment. Um, if the dollar's selling off, particularly globally around the world, right? Emerging markets have been, you know, Brazil's up like 13% year to date. When people are like, oh my God, the stock market's in a bear market. I'm like, which country? Just because your your home country bias is oozing out of you doesn't mean that we're in a bear market. Brazil's up 13%. Doesn't doesn't sound like a bear market to me. It's fascinating on on the rate hikes. I saw somebody posting how they they hiked their rates 1.5% this week to 10 and it was like 10 and a half percent is their fed rate a question on uh is the fed behind the curve on inflation you see brazil uh what you're talking about on the equities and then on on the on the rate side they're they're over double digits on their short-term policy rate which is interesting on you know what they're doing to to control inflation yeah look at ewz um look at uh, petrobras petroleo brazil you know, so it's funny, just the name, Petróleo Brazil, Petróleo meaning oil, Brasilio meaning Brazil. So you got Brazil up 13%. You got uh, oil absolutely ripping. Uh, so you get both of them in the same stock, <laughs> you know, and obviously it's it's been one of the best performers in the entire world over the last couple of months. Something funky going on in Brazil. Brazil stopped going down like in uh, like in September and October. Stopped going down. So while everybody's talking about bear markets and lower lows and all this stuff, you know, Brazil doesn't care. Uh, a lot more. Brazil has no exposure to technology, no exposure to growth. You're getting just a ton of value there, financials, ton of financials, ton of natural resources. And what works in a rising rate environment? Those. We're talking with J.C. Peretz, founder of All Star Charts. J.C., and, and while we're talking Brazil, uh, one of the other big EMs, and I, I wonder, is it stopping going down? Is the pace going to ever stop going down? Is China and China Tech, um, certainly the capital people started buying, they were buying the dip all last year. I mean, I, I was surprised how resilient the flows to China Tech in the ETF world in that I'm in. Um, but is, is, is there anything shaping to say that that is, is forming a bottom or is it still just all negative to you? No, I, I mean, of all the garbage out there, of all, like, and I call them garbage, all the things that peaked in February of last year, right? That's when all the garbage peaked. That's when the, uh, as we call them, the culprits, the culprits. So you've got, what do you got? You got anything that Kathy Wood manages has been murdered. You've got, uh, you got biotechnology. You've got the IPO index, which is like a beautiful gauge of that garbage trade. Uh, you've got China. You've got Chinese Internet. You've got the SPAC index. You've got the marijuana. Like those are just the worst things that you could have possibly owned in the last year, right? China being part of that group. Now, while the rest of the garbage has gone on to continue to make new lows, China's the one part of the garbage that has not, which I find interesting, particularly with what's happening in Brazil. Like, is it a Brazil-only Latin America situation, or is it spilling over? You know, it's, it's not as, as – we haven't seen the bounce as strong as Brazil, um, but I think, that, I think there's some kind of relative strength in China compared to its brothers and sisters that all peaked a year ago. Remember, remember in February, the advanced decline line in the NASDAQ peaked, the new, the new highs list peaked, all of those growth areas that I just mentioned, they all peaked, including China. So as they've gone on to continue to make new lows this year – China hasn't. I am, I am impressed by that. And if you look at the A shares, by the way, uh, way stronger than any of, the other, um, you know, any of the other ways that you can analyze China by looking at CQQQ, which is Chinese technology, or KWeb, which would be the uh, China 
um, the China internet stocks, you look at FXI, those are the 25, the large caps. We're not making new lows. And I think that's impressive. I don't, I don't necessarily think I've seen enough to see a real turn. Uh, if you look at M EMXC, so EMXC is China is uh, emerging markets X China, and it looks way better than EEM. Uh, EEM has been going down for a whole year, and EMXC has been going sideways for a whole year. So if anything, that relative strength screams to me that if we're going to be in emerging markets, I think continuing to avoid China, even though it's showing relative strength to the other garbage, I think it's probably the wise choice in a, in a very similar way that if you look at you know small caps, people are like, small caps are in a bear market. Well, small cap growth is in a bear market, but small cap value looks completely different. So small cap value is still in a range over the last year, while small cap growth broke uh, and has been making lower lows. Um, in fact, when people are like, small caps didn't do well last year, small cap value was up like 27%, kept up with the yeah. large cap stocks. It was small cap growth that got murdered. Yeah, and, the, and the, there's a huge difference between like even the Russell and the S and P indexes, where like they're thirty percent of the Russell. Like, I mean, you talk about the things that uh, there's a huge correlation with unprofitable tech and all that stuff. And 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 the Russell two thousand has a lot of the unprofitable biotechs, unprofitable tech. If you even just look at the S and P six hundred, it's a very different story from the versus Russell two thousand. And then the value, I think, uh, goes with that uh, even more so. Also, and then, and remember, Jeremy, like you and I are jaded because you and I, of all people have a very good understanding of the composition of indexes and ETFs. Like you literally do that for a living. I analyze those things for a living. So you and I are like in, in the 1% of our understanding of composition, but for investors who are just not aware of what's inside these indexes and ETFs, I highly, highly encourage you to go see the sector breakdowns for the S&P 500 or whatever funds you own, you know, NASDAQ funds, I think you'll be surprised as to how little certain sectors are weighted and how large others might be. We I, we haven't, uh, in, in the first 45, 50 minutes, we haven't touched crypto yet. And I know you guys also are, are charting uh, and, and watching crypto. And today, as we're talking, uh, we've got, it's been a long time since crypto's had a positive green story. We've got a big green story today on crypto. What? How did you uh, turn to crypto? What's your general view on what's been happening there? You know, the, one of the best things about crypto is that, you know, there, there are no narratives. I mean, people like to make up narratives, but like in the stock market, like the narratives are easier and earnings and the CEO and blah, blah, blah. And in crypto, it's, you got none of that. Right? There's no earnings, right? There's no revenues. There's no sales. I mean, you literally just have price. So I don't want to hear it, you know, about the PE ratio or whatever. So they're staking. There's all sorts. There are there's people are trying to make some of these narratives. I, of course they are, right? Because we're the humans. Humans, we're stupid. We need stories. I mean, we've been. That's why we're here because of our ability to tell stories, to appreciate stories. Like it's very natural to want to hear narratives and 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 want to talk about the gossip. It's actually perfectly normal. It would be uh, unnatural uh, to not want to. So I would encourage everybody to get their human desire for stories outside of the market. For me. I look at like college football recruiting and stuff like that. That's where I get my gossip and I get my fix because I am human. Uh, so the idea is to not get that fix of gossip in the stock market, right? Make sure that you're focusing only on the truth and that is price. So, um, you know, Bitcoin has been uh, in a downtrend, right? In a, in a bear market, a uh, winter, you know, whatever the uh, nomenclature of the day might be, um, you know, and, and if we were below 41, I've been saying if we're below 41, there's nothing to talk about from the long side in Bitcoin. And I've been very consistent about that. And here we are approaching 41. And what I've been saying is that nothing, nothing, Jeremy, nothing in this whole world that I can think of would be more bullish for Bitcoin and crypto assets than Bitcoin getting above 41 and stick in that. If you see Bitcoin above 41 and holding above that, I cannot think of anything more constructive for the crypto space. And you saw Ethereum getting above that 27 this morning. Interesting relative strength there over the last few days. I'm telling you right now, Jeremy, if Bitcoin can hold 41, I think the squeeze can be on. I really, really do. It's got, got to show me. Got to, what, show, got to see it. Right? What was, uh, what's, what's special about the 41,000 level? Yeah, so it's a great question. So that's, that's really where um, uh, Bitcoin peaked in January of last year. 
right? Um, and that uh, we broke down. We broke down there in May and then just bounced back up to that level in June and failed again. There was a bunch of churning near that level in August. Once again, we ultimately broke out. That's where support, uh, where they found support in September, found support there again in December, found support there again at the beginning of the year in January, and then we broke. So there's just a lot of market memory there. A lot of shares, or in this case, coins, have exchanged hands. Uh, there's just a lot of volume there, a lot of market memory there, and we are below overhead supply if prices are below that level. By definition, you flip that upside down. If we're above 41, we are above underneath demand. And that, those are the types of markets that I like to own. Um, so I think you're probably going to get more beta in some of the other areas like Luna. You know, if Bitcoin's above 41, Luna's above 53. I think you own Luna. You own Luna above 53. You got to target 60% higher in the low 80s. Um, you know, you want to, I mean, I, you guys do whatever you want to do. But for me, I like to look at relative strength. You know, that's a lot for me. I'm looking at Cosmos. Um, you know, I'd love to buy a breakout in Cosmos above 45. Here are sitting at three. So you need a 50% rally just to get to my key level. So, yes, you know, you can own Cosmos if you want against last week's lows for a trade. But from a structural perspective, boy, do I like buying a breakout above 45. Granted, we're very far from that. Uh, but that, to me, I think would be a tremendous trade. And, um, and Phantom's probably another one. Holding in okay. If we're above two in Phantom, I don't hate it. Um, I don't hate it at all. I think you got 50, 60% of upside there again. Um, and then add to positions on a breakout above three and a half. So I think there's opportunities there, you know. But I think it, it all comes down to Bitcoin above 41. I think that's the key. You got Bitcoin above 41, you're going to find a lot more opportunities out there. Well, it's a great way to end. Give us uh, 30 seconds where they can find information on you. If they like what they heard today, where, where can they find more on, on keeping track of your views? Yeah, no, listen, I appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Everybody, uh, I'm easy to find. Go to allstarcharts.com, uh, search Allstar Charts on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, StockTwits, at Allstar Charts. I'm easy to find. Uh, shoot me an email, info at allstarcharts.com. Say what's up. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you're seeing. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll do this again soon, Jeremy. We got a wrap. Uh, thanks for coming on. JC Perrett's All-Star Charts. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to our producer, Patty, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. This is Behind the Markets Podcast. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets Podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM Channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.